people can get distorted memories of things that allegedly happened or even develop false memories. Ted Bundy, Hillside Strangler, Timothy McVeigh, O.J. Simpson, the Menendez brothers, Michael Jackson, Phil Spector, Martha Stewart, Jerry Sandusky, Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein. Do you actually believe that the individuals that I just named were victims of either false memories or bad identification? If false information is incorporated into a question, can the person adopt it into their memory? Absolutely, yes. So, Dr. Loftus, have you and I met before? Welcome back to Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. I'm joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder. Tomorrow, we will release our episode covering the third day of Robert Durst's testimony. Today, we focus on the defense's only other live witness. Dr. Elizabeth Loftus is a memory expert with an extensive resume, both in terms of her professional accomplishments as well as the number of high-profile criminal cases in which she has testified as an expert witness. She is generally called to cast doubt on the memories of witnesses. Why was Dr. Loftus called to testify in this case? And why did the defense team choose her as the opening act for Robert Durst himself? In this episode, we'll speculate on the possible reasons behind calling Loftus and examine how effective that strategy has proven to be. We'll also explore the subtext of Deputy DA John Lewin's extensive cross-examination of this witness. That's coming up after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. During their opening, the defense team offered this context for Loftus's testimony. She is prepared to testify at this trial about the workings of human memory, the effects of suggestion on memory, the mechanism of creating false memories, and the characteristics of false memories, and her review of materials in this case. Moreover, she would identify some of the suggestive activities that occurred in this case such as leading questions when people are being interviewed, and outside research, including media, including the jigs. She will testify at trial regarding her studies of human memory and how memories can be changed by things that people are told by other people. In other words, she's going to talk about how ideas and suggestions and other post-event information can modify people's memories and that people can get distorted memories of things that allegedly happened or even develop false memories. Memories can be contaminated with misinformation from leading questions, media reports, and other witnesses' false recollections. False memories can be expressed with a great deal of emotion and the belief that they're true. As time passes and memory is getting weaker and weaker, you become even more vulnerable to post-event information. 
As we've reported, Robert Durst's long-held version of events that he was not in Los Angeles at the time of Berman's murder and that he did not write the so-called cadaver note changed shortly before this trial began. He now admits that he was in Los Angeles and did, in fact, write the cadaver note. However, since his narrative is uncorroborated by any other witnesses, the jury has had to wait for Durst's testimony, which is expected to continue into next week, to learn his complete story for the night that Berman was murdered. Aside from presenting the jury with Durst's own words, it appears that the defense team's strategy is to cast doubt on the deluge of evidence presented by the prosecution that points to Durst's guilt. Thus, the defense called an expert witness whose role in this trial seems to be to impugn the memories of those who have testified to the damning statements made by both the defendant and the victim in this case. On Tuesday, August 3rd, Dr. Elizabeth Loftus took the stand and sat for close to seven hours over four different days. On direct examination, defense attorney David Chesnoff asked Loftus about her extensive curriculum vitae, including her list of honorary degrees. Chesnoff then got to the heart of his examination. His questions seemed to take direct aim at the prosecution in this case. If six to eight people are interrogated by the same person, and they say the same thing. Can that still indicate a false memory? It, it can if, if those six to eight people are subjected to the same uh, maybe problematic uh, interviewing or post-event suggestion, some kind of suggestive information. Uh, they, they might all en end up believing something that isn't accurate. It's important to note that the defense and prosecution cannot refer to specific witnesses or testimony when questioning this memory expert witness. But Chesnoff's line of questioning begs the question, who are the six to eight people that he is referencing? The defense team's narrative suggests that Chesnoff is taking aim at the memories of a handful of Susan Berman's close friends who testified about information they had regarding Susan's involvement in the alleged cover-up of Kathy Durst's death. Chesnoff continued, If false information is incorporated into a question, can the person adopt it into their memory? Absolutely, yes. Can you explain how that works? Well, that's the kind of thing that we've actually done in some of my experiments. We incorporate false information into a question, and we look to see what people do with that suggestive question. So you show people, a, say, a simulated accident where a car goes through a yield sign before the accident and ask a leading question like, uh, did another car pass the red car when it was at the intersection with the stop sign? That can cause many people to now believe and remember they saw a stop sign instead of a yield sign. That's just one experimental example of how a question that has embedded in it some misinformation can be adopted by people. Both the question and answer appear to insinuate that the prosecution might have implanted false memories in witnesses by asking leading questions. But who specifically among Susan's friends is Chesnoff referencing? Could it be Nick Chavin? Nick, you also mentioned that Susan said to you that Bob had confided in her to more easily set up an alibi. Do you remember telling the police that? No. Um, do you... Say that again. So, so, you about something else? 
Yeah, so, yeah. Years ago, and we're not saying whether this is necessarily true or not. We're trying to figure out what Susan told you that somehow she helped Bob with an alibi. And, and oh yeah, 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 yeah. What did yeah. she say about that? Tell us what you meant by that. And again, it's not that you're saying you believe this to be true. Just what did Susan tell you about it? It's hard to remember. You know, I tell you, with my mind, if I sit down and think about it, I can put myself back there and remember it. But I don't know if I do it with that. There was something that she said like that. Over the course of Nick Chavin's time on the witness stand, the prosecution played back a series of recorded phone calls they had with him in the years leading up to the trial. By the time he testified, Chavin was open about his initial unwillingness to cooperate, and later his decision to share what he knew in this case. I feel, I feel like there's two scales. One is a betrayal of Bob Durst, and the other is a betrayal of Susan Berman. I feel that the betrayal I had felt of Susan Berman has lightened considerably, and I have the weight of, of <coughs> feeling grief and sadness about Bob. Chesnoff also asked Loftus about how external factors, including reinforcement from investigators, can create an inflated sense of confidence in witnesses' memories. What can cause someone to have an inflated confidence in their memory? You, you can ask people once they've uh, given you a memory report, how, how confident are, are you in what you're saying? And they may give a, a, a confidence level, they may say it in words, or they might say it, give you a number on a scale from one to 10. If you then give people feedback about their, about their memory report, it can artificially inflate their confidence. So if you say other people feel the same way, or we have other evidence that that's true, you can, you, somebody who once said, I'm pretty sure, can now say, I'm very sure. That's confidence inflation. If someone insists that they are absolutely sure that their memory is correct, can that alone provide certainty that their memory is in fact correct? Uh, no, it, it, it doesn't provide certainty. People can be quite certain about things that aren't accurate. Can you explain through, uh, to the jury through studies, or your studies, how people can have false memories? Generally, people have false memories. Um, they can have false memories because they're exposed to some kind of external information. They have a conversation with somebody else who utters something that's wrong. They get asked uh, uh, questions by, uh, by somebody who's uh, got a theory about what might have happened or could have happened and maybe communicates information even inadvertently. Uh, they can get false memories when they're exposed to media coverage that contains some misinformation of some sort. So, so memories can be changed by new external information that people encounter. So by what they read, see on TV, movies, anecdotes. Well, those are a few examples, some of which I mentioned and then you you know, you added movies, people can be, uh, have their memories affected by movies. Is Chesnoff referring here to Linda Obst? As we've previously reported, Linda Obst is a film and television producer who collaborated with Susan on a project that ultimately did not come to fruition. In her conditional witness examination, Obst testified that Susan told her she'd made a phone call to Dr. Albert Cooperman, the dean of Albert Einstein College of Medicine, pretending to be Kathy, the morning after Kathy's disappearance. 
Here's how Lewin elicited this testimony from Obst when she was on the stand in 2017. Do you recall, you mentioned a moment ago uh, that Susan made a comment about calling Albert Einstein. Right. Can you tell me, to the best of your memory, did that occur during the process, the five-year period that you were working with Susan on the screenplay? Yes. And if you can, can you recall, as best you can, what did she say? It came up in the context of she did the sorts of things for Bobby that Gladys did for Davy. And the example that she gave was that when Bobby was asked her to or needed her to, she made this phone call to Albert Einstein in Kathy's name. We stopped you when she said in Kathy's name. Or saying she was Kathy. Not only was Lewin careful to avoid leading questions in his examination, Obst recalled that the significance of this conversation occurred to her outside the context of this trial. When I say the jinx, you've heard of that? Yes. And you previously indicated that you gave an interview to yes. uh, Andrew uh, directing Mark Smirley, is that correct? Yes. Did you watch the jinx episode where they talked about the call to Albert Einstein Medical School. Yes. And can you tell me, when you watched that episode, can you tell me what happened? Yes. Um, that was a very disturbing episode to me because that was the point at which I realized that people did not know that she called the Albert Einstein Medical Center and that I immediately realized upon seeing that episode that I knew this fact. I was struck. Um, my heart started racing and uh, I, I knew that I knew this. Chesnoff then honed in on whether multiple people reporting the same set of facts might all have inaccurate memories. In conclusion, if multiple per people report similar memories when questioned by the same person, can there still be the potential for false memory? Uh, absolutely. If, if, if people, um, if multiple people are exposed to suggestion, uh, you can get those multiple people to, to all give the same wrong answer. Is it possible that Chesnoff is referring to Stephen Silverman or Ricky Ring? These friends of Susan Berman also gave testimony relating to the phone call to Dr. Cooperman, yet, as the prosecution pointed out in their opening statement, they did not have precisely the same information as any other witness. Ricky Ring recalled a conversation she had with Susan regarding Kathy's disappearance. Did you ever discuss with Susan anything about Kathy's disappearance? Yes. What did Susan say to you? She said that she was shocked, surprised, amazed that the New York Police Department bought the story that a fourth-year medical student, which Kathy was, would run off with her drug dealer and do no thorough investigation. She told me she was also shocked. Bobby threw out all of Kathy's possessions shortly after she disappeared. 
Later, Ring also described a light bulb moment relating to the phone call to Dean Cooperman, which, unlike Linda Obst, was not prompted by the jinx. When you were made aware that there was an allegation that Susan Berman had called the dean of the medical school pretending to be Kathy, what was your response? My response was to the content of the call, that the caller had said that she could not be there, be at class, because she had diarrhea. And how was that comment significant to you? Susan and I lived in the dorms and were roommates for several years, both in apartments and in dorms. Susan had a habit of emerging. We had communal bathrooms in UCLA dorms and announcing often that she had just had A, diarrhea, or B, thrown up because she had ulcers, she said. And when I heard that that was the nature of the call of all the millions of ailments in the world that seemed horribly suspicious. Meanwhile, here's how Silverman described his reaction to learning about the phone call. Was there a point in time, Mr. Silverman, where you heard that there had been a call placed to the dean of the medical school where the woman on the phone had discussed the symptoms she was having on uh, this woman having identified herself as Kathy Durst. Have you heard this information before? I have. When you heard that information, what did you think? A bell went off in my head. And at some point, you heard that in this call that the individual discussed um, details about their sickness. Is that correct? Correct. Graphic details. And when you heard the report of what had been said on the phone, what is the first thing that went through your mind? This sounds exactly like Susan. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. On cross-examination, Dr. Loftus was questioned by Deputy DA John Lewin. Since he, too, could not question Loftus on testimony of any specific witness— his strategy appeared to be to discredit the doctor in the eyes of the jury and further demonstrate that she is inclined to present testimony that favors the defendant rather than provide an unbiased assessment of facts. Lewin began by probing the memory expert's own memory. Um, doctor, in the last 40 years, you've testified in court almost 300 times, right? Approximately 300 times, yes. So, uh, Dr. Loftus, have you and I met before? I don't recall. It's possible. You testified in a case in 2012, People versus Jackson. That was a murder trial that I prosecuted in Torrance in front of the Honorable Mark Arnold. You came to Torrance and testified. Do you recall that? Uh, I do remember, I do believe I remember testifying in, in Torrance on occasion, but I'm sorry if I didn't recognize you with your mask. 
While Loftus may not have recognized Lewin's face, it may come as a surprise that she did not remember his voice or this line of questioning. Here is an excerpt from The People versus Andre Jackson, the first time Lewin questioned Loftus. Reporter Charlie Bagley reads John Lewin's questions, and Jury Duty co-producer Alexis Notabartolo reads Dr. Loftus's responses. Ma'am, as you sit here right now, are you having difficulty in terms of with your memory? Well, remembering 40 years worth of acknowledgments and articles and books, you know, I'm not sure I remember each one and every single thing I said. You have a pretty good memory of every honorary degree you ever had, though, right? Well, there were only six of those, though. In that excerpt, Lewin was asking whether Loftus's testimony in any criminal trial had acknowledged any of the victims of those alleged crimes. Last week, Lewin took a similar approach, asking about whether Loftus brings a particular bias into the courtroom. Do you consider yourself to be a neutral witness? I think so. Well, in fact, ma'am, when you testified at the Jackson case at page 42, lines 3 through 6, I asked you the following. Do you consider yourself to be a neutral witness? And you responded, I'm a neutral witness as far as the science. Uh, as far as the science. I'm not neutral. I'm, you know, in favor of truth. And I said, so as you sit here today, my question is, given everything that you know as you sit here, do you consider yourself to be an unbiased witness? And you responded, yes. Do you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I agree with my former self, yes. Okay. Do you agree, ma'am, that it's, it's important for a psychologist like yourself who testifies in court not to be an advocate? Well, I think it's wise to try not to be an advocate. Um, Sometimes as a human, especially if you feel that somebody is innocent or being railroaded or being overcharged, it's, it's hard to not have feelings. Okay, so let me ask you again my question. I didn't ask you how you felt about it. Just listen to my question. Do you believe that it is important for a psychologist who is there, quote, to just talk about the science to make sure that they are not an advocate? Do you agree with that? I think that that's something to strive for, yes. Lewin continued reading a quote from Loftus in order to understand her position. Let me add a little more. If I believe a defendant is innocent, if I believe in his innocence with all my heart and soul, then I probably can't help but become an advocate of sorts. Is that something you agree with? Uh, well, that's something that sounds like something I might have said, yes. So, ma'am, isn't it true despite what you said that you're neutral and unbiased, that you favor the defense side? In my experience in criminal cases, I have testified on behalf of defense, the defense typically. In civil cases, it can be either side, but that's because uh, it's usually the prosecution that has a, a witness who's got a memory issue. In The People versus Jackson, Loftus admitted that she almost always testifies on behalf of the defense. Again, Charles Bagley reads Deputy D.A. Lewin, and Alexis Bartolo reads Dr. Loftus. You said that you've testified roughly in 100 criminal cases, one time for the prosecution, right? Correct. Would you agree then, ma'am, that your, at least your history has been almost exclusively on the defense side? In terms of court testimony, yes. To reinforce his inference that Loftus is biased, Lewin asked her about one of her books. You wrote a book, literally, that you titled Witness for the Defense. Is that correct? 
That's the title of one of my books, yes. You would agree that, Doctor, there is a portion in that book where that exact quote that I just said, where you say I'd never met a prosecutor who's happy to see me in the courtroom. Is that right? I just don't recall that or, or the context in which I might have said it. It was 1991 when that book was published, so... I'm going to read it out loud for you. The prosecutor was tall and thin with a long, straight nose. That's the bottom of page 147, top of 148. Sideburns that looked like they were trimmed with a ruler and fingernails neatly clipped and shiny as if they'd been buffed. Good morning, doctor, he said, his smile definitely forced. I'd never met a prosecutor who was happy to see me in the courtroom. That's what you wrote, correct? Uh, well, that was in that book from 1991, a description of something that happened in one of the trials that I was involved in. So as an unbiased, simply scientist wanting to get to the truth, why on earth would a prosecutor, quote, be, uh, I've never met a prosecutor who was happy to see me in the courtroom? What did you mean by that? What I may have meant, it was 1991, so this is just a speculation, is that typically I am called by the defense uh, and in a criminal case. And so pr probably prosecutors are not that happy when I come into the courtroom to testify on behalf of the defense, which I think is true of you. Lewin asked Loftus about another common element in the trials where she has previously testified. So... I want to ask, Mr. Chesnoff spent a whole lot of time going over your CV. There's going to be no awards for any organizations associated with the Me Too movement. Is that correct? Well, we'll see. None so far, right? No, not so far. You've been met with protests around the country for individuals from the Me Too movement who have a problem with some of the things you've said and some of the rapists and child molesters that you've testified. Is that correct? Um, certainly, people have um, been distressed with some of the unpopular people whose cases I may have consulted on or actually testified in. It has distressed some people. Lewin then questioned her motivation for testifying on behalf of another notorious defendant, disgraced film mogul Harvey Weinstein. Some students or someone got upset that I would dare to testify for someone who's unpopular. Right. Dare to testify for someone who's unpopular for a whole lot of money, correct? Uh, well, it was not a whole lot of money. I agreed to um, provide expert testimony for the defense. Uh, I was away from my office for four days, and I agreed to a fee of $14,000. And, and ma'am, no one forced you to take that case, correct? I wasn't forced to, no. Later, Lewin went through some of the other defendants on whose behalf she's worked, starting with a particularly notorious client from early in her career. Let's talk about your past client list. Who's Ted Bundy? Uh, Ted Bundy, um was tried for an aggravated kidnapping in, in the mid-1970s um, before anybody knew he was the Ted Bundy, and I was an expert witness in that trial in so the it, 1970s in Utah. So it's your position, listen to my question very carefully, that at the time of that trial, doctor, 
there was no discussion of Ted Bundy being a serial killer with, with victims in Washington at the time. Uh, at the time, Ted Bundy was a first-year law student at the University of Utah Law School. He was accused of this uh, attempted um, kidnapping. Lewin then went through more of Dr. Loftus's past clients. Who's Jerry Sandusky? Uh, he's accused of uh, um, molesting students uh, in conjunction with the Penn State scandal. Wait, accused or convicted of dozens of counts of molestation? He was, he was convicted, yes. You worked on his case, correct? Well, I primarily was working on behalf of the Penn State administrators who were accused of knowing and maybe not reporting things that they may or may not have known. And, and then after their case was uh, resolved, I did consult on the Sandusky case. I asked you a very simple question. Did you represent Jerry Sandusky? The answer would be yes, correct? I consulted on the case, yes. Bill Cosby. I consulted on that case too. Harvey Weinstein. I actually testified in the Weinstein trial. Did anybody force you, doctor, to take those cases? Uh, nobody forced me, no. Um, in taking these cases, did you make any determination or not as to whether the charges against these men were untrue? That is not my role. That's the jury's role to take in all the information and make that decision. Lewin tried to drill down on Loftus's motivation for testifying in these cases. The individuals that I just named, Ted Bundy, Hillside Strangler, Timothy McVeigh, O.J. Simpson, the Menendez brothers, Michael Jackson, Phil Spector, Martha Stewart, Jerry Sandusky, Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, do you actually believe that the individuals that I just named were victims of either false memories or bad identifications, your areas of study? It's not my position to judge whether they're guilty or not, but there were memory issues in those cases. Right, and, and you were happy to take the check, correct? I actually didn't get paid in all those cases. So let me ask you, the clients that I just named, was it your quest for fame your desire for money, or both? Neither. Neither. Um, have you ever told anybody any comments about how excited you were to be working on the Harvey Weinstein case? I don't think I ever told somebody I was excited to be working on it. No, I actually tried to um, get, uh, recommend another expert in that case and almost succeeded. So Rachel Aviv, the woman who did the extensive profile on you, you discussed your work on the Weinstein case, is that correct? I did talk with her about that to some extent, yes. Do you, remember, do you remember saying the following, this is in her article, quote, I have to admit that it is fascinating to me, you know, in the trenches with the trial of the century. Do you recall saying that to her? I don't remember exactly that, but I, I do believe I said to her that it, it, because I am a true crime buff, it is interesting for me to be able to look inside some of these cases and see what's happening. I just want to be clear, you're not disputing that you told the author, quote, I have to admit that it is fascinating to be, you know, in the trenches with the trial of the century. I, I, I believe I was speaking generally in 
being involved in a case, and Michael Jackson and Martha Stewart and other interesting people, it, it is interesting, it's fascinating. It's, it's interesting and also for you, for a lot of these witnesses, or a lot of these defendants, extremely well-paying, is that correct? Sometimes I am well-paid and other times not. Would you consider $600 an hour to be just well-paid or extremely well-paid? Uh, actually, I now charge $700 an hour, but I don't raise my rate in the middle of a case, so I would not be raising the rate in this case. But it's now $700 an hour because experts in my field, some of them are charging $1,500 an hour, and they are younger and less experienced than I am. Lewin then moved on to the areas that defense attorney David Chesnoff had covered during his direct examination of Loftus, seeking concessions from the witness. All right, let's talk for a moment about details versus gist. You would agree that there's a difference between remembering an event itself and remembering more peripheral details of an event. Is that correct? Yes. And would you agree that there's a difference between implanting false memories about details of an event versus implanting memories about the gist of the event itself? It's probably easier to plant uh, false memories of peripheral details than, say, central details. Unsatisfied with this answer, Lewin asked Loftus about her use of the word probably. Doctor, let me ask you, you just used the qualifier probably. Is it probably easier, or do your studies demonstrate that it is easier? Generally, I think it would be easier to plant peripheral details. So, Doctor, was it an accident that you used a qualifier, probably, to minimize the meaning of the question I asked you? Absolutely not. Have you noticed, Doctor, that in the testimony you've given, whenever I ask you a question, that in any way implies or leads to the idea that is a point that is positive for the prosecution in this case, that the way you respond is, it might be, possibly, probably. Do you notice that you use a lot of those qualifiers or no? Well, I noticed that you're accusing me of it, yes. Uh, do you think that's an unfair accusation? Uh, no, because I'm, I try to be careful and not overstate things. Lewin then turned to asking Dr. Loftus about the relative accuracy of specific kinds of memories. Would you expect that, for instance, if an individual had a conversation, they're having a conversation with a close friend of theirs, and that close friend tells them about something terrible they had done, would you expect the listener to remember the general information that my friend told me I did X, Y, Z versus peripheral details, for instance, such as where they were when it happened, what day of the week it was on, what they were wearing. You'd expect them to remember the gist, the main issue would be, my friend told me they did something terrible, correct? Yes. And the studies support that, is that correct? Yes. Here, Lewin may have been referencing Nick Chavin's testimony during which he had difficulty recalling details of the dinner he had with Robert Durst in Harlem in 2014, but had a very vivid memory of a conversation they had after dinner where Chavin asked, quote, you were going to tell me about Susan, end quote, and Durst replied, quote, I had to, it was her or me, end quote. And would you agree that even after time passes, 
from an event, although peripheral details tend to be lost. So as an example, the close, the individual, the witness, is talked to an hour later, and they're asked the following questions. Hey, what did the person tell you? And where were you when they told you? And what was the person wearing today that told you? Fair to expect that because it's so close in time, you might expect the witness to remember those peripheral details about the day of the week, where they were, what the other person was wearing, because it's so close in time, right? Yes. You, you also wouldn't be surprised because the gist was that terrible statement of, oh my God, my friend is admitted to doing something terrible, that they might completely forget the peripheral details because they just weren't very important. Agreed? Yes. And you would expect that if I asked that person the same thing 10 years later, they're going to remember the fact, the gist, that my friend told me they did a terrible thing much more likely than they're going to remember the peripheral details, correct? I'd agree with that, yes. All right. Would you agree that it is harder for a false memory of a statement to be implanted if the listener did not want to believe the false statement when they were told the information? Yes. Here, too, Lewin appears to be referencing the testimony of Nick Chavin, who said the following to Lewin while relating that Susan Berman told him that Robert Durst killed his wife. Susan said to me specifically that Bob killed Kathy, and I said, no, he didn't, and she said, yes, he did, and we argued about that, and she said, we love both of them, Kathy's gone, we love Bob, we need to protect him, Bob killed Kathy. I said, how do you know? She said, he told me. How many times did you and Susan have such a conversation? Approximately half a dozen times. We argued on a consistent basis over that. When you would argue about it, does that mean that when she originally told you, you didn't believe her? That's correct. Lewin also may have been referencing the testimony of Miriam Barnes, who testified that Susan told her some disturbing information related to Robert Durst, but whose memory of the timing of her conversation with Susan did not completely jibe with the disappearance of Kathy Durst. So as an example, if somebody tells you the same example, someone tells a close friend, I've done a horrible thing. I helped cover up a murder. You would agree that an individual hearing that from a close friend that is very likely to be disturbing, right? It, it could be. It, it, it might be. Okay, so there's a couple of qualifiers. Let me just understand that. So a close friend tells you, I have helped somebody cover up a murder. And your response to that is, well, it could be upsetting to the listener hearing that. It might be upsetting to the listener hearing that. How on earth could it be anything other than extremely upsetting if a close friend is now basically saying they helped cover up a murder? If, if somebody believed the speaker was had a tendency to exaggerate or even um, be dramatic, and it, it might not be upsetting. Miriam Barnes had testified to the following under the questioning of Deputy DA Habib Balian. And when you got up, was Susan acting at all 
out of the ordinary. Yeah, we were in the, the, the vestibule, the hallway of our apartment. Yeah. You know, so we didn't go into the living room, we didn't go into the kitchen. We were just in the, this long hallway. And she was pacing back and forth. She asked me to sit down. There were two chairs, like, you know, not living room comfy chairs, just two chairs facing each other in, 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 in the hallway. She asked me to sit down. She said, I wouldn't tell you something, but I, I, I need you not to ask me any questions. It took her a while to get it out. She was very nervous. And when Susan got nervous, she would pick at her lip. She said, I did something today and did it for Bobby. And then her next statement was, if anything ever happened to me, Bobby did it. In his original questioning of Barnes, Balian also tried to clarify the timing discrepancy. What year did this conversation occur? Seventies, um, I don't know. It has to be in the seventies because it was before I was getting married, and it was before I got married. Well, what year did you? I've been divorced longer than I've been I was married, so it's so hard to. Well, I got you. married, I think, in in seventy five, seventy six. Let me ask you: Are you more certain of exactly when this conversation took place, or are you more certain about what was said? I'm more certain of what was said. Okay. And let me ask you this. Um, how certain are you that whenever this conversation happened, it was at the same period of time that um, Kathleen Durst had gone Yes, because then it was in the newspaper a little while later. That time period that you read and heard about it, was that uh, generally the same time period that this conversation took place? Like the same year? Yes, of course. Okay within the same weeks. Yeah. And so by getting Loftus to acknowledge that memories of receiving disturbing information might be more accurate than other details surrounding the receipt of that information, Lewin appears to be reinforcing for the jury Balian's framing of which Miriam Barnes' memories are more accurate. Finally, Lewin asked about the correlation between a witness's confidence in a memory and the accuracy of that memory. I want to talk about confidence versus accuracy. Would you agree there is a correlation in memory between how confident someone is of their memory versus how accurate their meaning is? Meaning that it correlates that the more confident a person is in their memory, the more accurate the memory tends to be? Again, Dr. Loftus initially equivocated. I, well, certainly that's, that seems to be true if there's no contamination or post-event suggestion, right. that there is some relationship between confidence and accuracy. Eventually, however, Lewin managed to pin down a more definitive answer. And you'd acknowledge there's a body of research that supports this correlation, correct? A body of research that supports? The correlation between confidence in memory and accuracy. But yes, I just uh, said that. No, you said that was your position. I'm now asking if there's a body of research that supports it. Yes. To discuss these developments, we're joined by reporter Charlie Bagley, who's covering the case for The New York Times and for CrimeStory.com. Charlie, thanks for being with us. Hey. So, Charlie, Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, what did you make of that four-day, seven-hour saga? Number one, this case spans 40 years. So we're talking about witnesses dredging their memories about events 40 years ago in Kathy's case, and then 
of at least 21 years in the instance of Morris Black and Susan Berman. So, of course, you want to call a memory expert. Dr. Loftus got up there, and many of the things that she said about memory I found interesting, but it didn't seem to particularly uh, relate to the witnesses that were in this case, in the sense that a lot of Susan's friends didn't even know each other. So they were not contaminating each other's memories. Right. Charlie, do you care to speculate on which witnesses in particular the defense seemed to be referencing without actually naming any names? Well, sure. I think uh, some of them were pretty obvious. I mean, Mella, Susan's quasi-daughter. I think another one was Miriam Barnes. Another one, Lorraine Newman. And then finally, I think there were a couple cracks at Nick Chavin. Right. Well, I don't know about you, Charlie, but I was absolutely dumbfounded when Lewin asked her about Ted Bundy and we found out that she had testified on behalf of, you know, the rock star of the true crime world. It was like absolutely unbelievable that she was advocating for him and Harvey Weinstein and so many others. Do you think that tipped the scales at all for the jury? Like, how do you think her list of clients played with them? Given the notorious reputation of a lot of the people she's testified on behalf of, it um, I, I think that does have an effect. And then, as the prosecutor repeatedly brought home, is if she testified in a hundred different cases, ninety nine of them were for the defense. If the jury does find Dr. Loftus credible, how would it be possible, do you think, that they could apply that logic to the prosecution's witnesses and not to Bob Durst himself? Wouldn't his own memories be impugned in the same way if she's to be believed? You know, the, the, the funny thing is, with Bob, you're talking about somebody that's given multiple versions, some of them diametrically opposed to each other. So which one should we believe and which one do we label a lie? Whereas the witnesses in the case, they may not have immediately spoken up, but they did express quite a bit of confidence in their memory of a particular event or or something that Susan had told them. Uh, That's very different than giving multiple versions. Right. That's a great point. Everybody has really been remarkably consistent. And then in the case of Nick Chavin, who was only slightly inconsistent, you know, the prosecution took great pains to show why that was and his kind of journey to coming around. And then, you know, you've kind of got like the durst of the week, whichever story he wants to go with. Brittany, I have a question for you. What do you make of John Lewin's style of interrogating Dr. Loftus? I don't know that he's always doing himself a favor by becoming what strikes me as emotionally involved in the questioning. You know, I'm not giving him an acting note or anything like that. I think I, you know, I'm a very conflict averse person and I have a hard time listening to uh, people argue. Well, Brittany and Charlie, thank you again for being with us today. And we're looking forward to more testimony. And we will be back with another special episode every day that Robert Durst testifies here on Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from Season 1. And head over to CrimeStory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. This episode was written and edited by yours truly, Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced by Alexis Notabartolo and Brittany Bookbinder. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. <laughs>